you take your Bibles now, if you would please, and we'll open them to Matthew chapter 6. This, of course, is the first Sunday of 2010, and I am just thankful that the Lord has given us another year where we can open up the Word of God together. I was reading in the paper just over the weekend, uh, and I suppose some of you have seen this as well, and you might even think this way, that most people said the best thing about 2009 is that it's over. And I I think there are a lot of people who really do think that way. I don't necessarily think that way because I look back on the year of 2009 and I just saw a wonderful opportunity to just preach through the Word of God and just learn things about Him. And I hope that for you, 2009 was a year of spiritual growth. And certainly in 2010, that ought to be our goal, that we do grow spiritually. Last year, maybe we didn't reach certain attendance goals that we would like, But I do hope that through listening to the preaching of the Word of God that you have grown spiritually over the past year and that you will make it your goal to study God's Word even more throughout this year. Now, I don't suppose that there is a better subject that we could come to on this first Sunday morning of the new year than this one that we have before us today. The subject this morning and the subject that we will discuss over the coming weeks and the next few weeks is prayer. Many good Bible teachers have said that prayer is a true gauge of a person's spirituality. There are two main activities that you look at in a Christian's life to see where they are spiritually. And the first one is the Word of God. How much time does a person spend in God's Word? Do you read it? Do you study it? And the second thing that you would look at to see how close that a person is to God and how spiritual they are is what kind of a prayer life do they have. Now, if you begin 2010 with the determination that you're going to study God's Word more and that also that you are going to increase your prayer life, I promise you, you will grow spiritually in this year. Now, as we look here into the Sermon on the Mount, we we come to a section of the sermon that's well-known and very beloved by God's people. Now, this section is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, And in a moment, we'll discuss maybe why we could title this in a better way. But we know it as the Lord's Prayer. And it is vital instruction that was given by Jesus on how to pray. Now, if spirituality is largely determined by your prayer life, then it would only be natural to assume that we must know how to pray properly. As we look at these next few verses, they contain only a few words. There are just 66 words in this entire prayer, and yet it contains every vital element that's necessary for a properly constructed prayer. Now, I think that only Jesus, who was the master teacher, could take such an important subject, one that is so vital to our lives, and condense it into such a small space and have it be something that we really do need to take time to consider. Now, I want to read this prayer today, and I'm going to give you some background information this morning. We're just going to kind of do an overview of the subject. And as uh, we go through in the coming weeks, we're going to break the Lord's Prayer down into its component parts, and it will help us to understand better what God expects in our prayer lives and the kind of things that we ought to pray for. Now, if you'd stand, please, as we read God's Word. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, we begin in verse number 9. Again, something very familiar to everyone here. After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we're beginning this study of Matthew 6 and the Lord's Prayer. And I just ask you, Lord, that you would help us to understand in a much, much better way uh, today and in these coming weeks what you expect from our prayer lives. Lord, I pray that you would just lay that upon our hearts, that we would be very sincere about this, and that we would understand that our power with you comes through prayer. We really need to be in communication, that you will bless our church, you will bless us in this year if we simply dedicate ourselves to your word and to have an active prayer life where we have you at the very center of everything that we do. Bless in the message today, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In the past few weeks of our study in Matthew chapter 6, we've been discussing the practical application of Jesus' teachings that are found in chapter 5. Now, theology was the subject of chapter 5, and it's very evident as we read through that chapter and begin to study what Jesus has to say, that the theology of the people at that time was very much wrong. Now, the Old Testament scriptures... uh, was the whole structure for the worship of the people of God. God's law told the people how they were to worship. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai and there God gave him the law, he gave him not only the moral law, the way that we're supposed to live in our personal lives, but God also gave them a ceremonial law and a judicial law, and that law told them how they were to worship God. But the religious leaders of Jesus' time had misused the law, and really what they had done, they had gutted it of the two very most essential elements that undergird the entirety of all of God's law. Now, those are two things that you ought to know very well, and that is that we are to love God, and secondly, that we are to love our fellow man. Now, those are two very important principles. The whole law centers upon that. But these people had failed in that, and while they pretended that they were keeping God's law and they were teaching it correctly, really what they had done was simply to implement a wholly inadequate interpretation of God's law. And so because their theology concerning the law was wrong, everything that flowed out of that theology was also wrong. You see, if you have a wrong view of God, and you don't honor God as you should, you don't love Him as you should, and if you have a wrong view of man, and you don't understand your relationship to man, then it follows that everything that flows out of that wrong theology would be wrong. And so worship comes from that. And so because theology was wrong, their worship was wrong. You can't get right religious practice out of the wrong theology. Now, if you want to know why at Berean Baptist we are very much sticklers on this and we stick to the Word of God, it's because we do believe that we cannot worship God correctly unless we have an understanding of what God's Word really teaches. We need to have our theology correct. Now, in chapter 6, Jesus begins to teach about how that their worship was wrong. And in the first 18 verses, we see that there are three examples of wrong practice. And Jesus begins to correct those things. They were hypocritical in their practices of their worship. First, we talked about giving. Then it was about praying. And we did have a, a short segment that we talked about that. And then there were acts of personal devotion. 
And those three areas are the sum total of the way that man worships God. And in all three of those areas, these people were wrong. Now, we noticed something, though, about those three. And if you remember, as we were going through this, we we sort of called those worship centers, three different types of worship centers, giving, praying, and fasting. And the fasting part represented our acts of personal devotion. And the reason that I skipped over this, this particular part that contains the Lord's Prayer, is because I was trying to keep those three areas together. Giving and praying and fasting comprise all of man's worship. And so in order to keep that together, we skipped over this particular part. And that was to show you that the entirety of their worship was wrong. But now we have to return to prayer because of those three types of worship, prayer is the one that is the most essential. In fact, I would say that prayer is the one that governs the other two. It's so vitally important that if your prayer life is not right, it's unlikely that your giving is going to be right. And if you're wrong in your prayer life, it's unlikely that your personal acts of devotion are going to be right. Now, I'll state that to you another way. You show me a person that is stingy and reluctant about their giving, and I'll show you a person that really doesn't have much of a prayer life. And if you show me a person that really doesn't care very much at all about church, they can take it or leave it, they can uh, come when they want or not come when they want, and they have no time to spend for God, and they spend all of their time on themselves, I can show you a person that does not have a very good prayer life. Now, a healthy prayer life will correct your giving, and it will also correct your service. And that's why Jesus spends time on prayer. Here we have a lengthy section about prayer. It runs all the way from verse number 5 down to verse number 15. And we notice here that with the other worship centers of giving and fasting, there's really not much said about it. There's not much instruction given on those two. But when Jesus comes to the issue of prayer, here he spends time. Because this is so vital. And we have to know how to pray properly in order that we might worship God in the right way. Now I know that Uh, or I hope that listening to sermons that you have uh, started out correctly on how to study the Bible. And I said just a moment ago, you determine spirituality by uh, one of the ways, by how a person studies the Bible. How much time does he spend in the Word of God? And if you listen to sermons, that is a very good way to begin to understand God's Word. You begin to analyze what the Word of God has to say. Now, if if you keep the outlines that we give each week and you read over those and take them home with you and look at them again, you'll begin to see how I, I develop a, a pattern of studying. And if you look at those, that'll help you, that, that you'll learn how to study the Bible better. I know some of you don't fill out the outlines, and I'm not necessarily criticizing you for that, but I do promise you that if you did, and you took it home, and you looked at those outlines and how they're developed, and the notes that you take along with it, you would also learn how to study the Bible, and you'd learn how that develops. Well, prayer is something that Jesus is very concerned about as well. Now, we have a good start on Bible study, and coming here and listening to sermons, that's a good start. You ought not to to end it here, though. Go home, study your Bible, read the Bible regularly, and the beginning of 2010 is a good time for you to decide, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to study God's Word more than I have in the past. Now, today, though, it's that second vital area. It's the issue of prayer. And prayer time is so important that Jesus just gives this masterful exposition of proper prayer 
in this section of Matthew 6 called the Lord's Prayer. Now, we're going to do a little bit of an overview today. And as I said over the next few weeks, we're going to break down every part of the Lord's Prayer and understand what Jesus meant by every statement. But I want us to look, first of all, today at the desire to pray. The desire to pray. Now, of the three areas of worship, giving, praying, and personal devotion, I really do believe that prayer is the most difficult. Prayer is probably the one that you have the most trouble with because if there is any spiritual activity that Satan desires to attack, it is your prayer life. I mean, Satan knows that prayer is powerful and he knows that if he can keep you from praying, that he's able to stunt your spiritual development and actually he's able to neutralize the power that you have with God. And you think about your own prayer life. I mean, who here today could not attest to this, that you begin to pray and you, and you feel like maybe you do want to pray, but just a few words into the prayer that you're praying, all of a sudden your mind begins to wonder. It goes off to a thousand different things. And sometimes even an evil thought can come into your heart, into your mind, right where you're pr- while you're praying. And you say, where did that come from? Well, that's the devil attacking your prayer life. And then there are times that when uh, you're in a spiritual distress, a time of distress, you're at a low spiritual ebb, and that's when you know that you need to pray, but you really don't want to. Prayer is the very thing that would get you out of your distress, and yet prayer is what you avoid. Now, Satan attacks you. He attacks the desire to pray. If spirituality is so much governed by a good prayer life, then you can be assured of this. It's going to be difficult every time that you pray, and that's because of Satan's continual action against it. Now, we see in Jesus' example of prayer in verses 5 through 8 that it really wasn't so much that these people didn't want to pray. I mean, it was a problem with praying correctly. And Satan may be content to let you have your desire to pray as long as he can steer you in the wrong direction. If he can make your prayers wrong, offered in the wrong way, uh, thought about the wrong things, praying for the wrong type of things, praying for all the wrong reasons, Satan is perfectly perfectly content with that. And that is exactly what he had done with these people. Now, perhaps it, it uh, wouldn't have made much sense for Satan to try to, desire, to attack their desire to pray because their entire religious life was built upon this. I mean, these were praying people. And so rather than take away the desire, he just perverted the practice. Now, in the study of verses 5 through 8, we learned that we can address our prayers wrongly. Uh, we may pray for selfish purposes. We may pray in order that we might be heard from men. And that's heard by men, and that is exactly where these people were. They were wrong in all accounts in their prayer life. Now, if we look at the desire to pray, it can come from two different perspectives. Let me show you two different perspectives about prayer. The first one is God's perspective, from God's perspective. And these people did believe that God desired them to pray. There was a different attitude about prayer with these people. And uh, Jewish life, as I said, was centered around prayer. And it was the completely opposite of people who lived around them. The heathen peoples that lived around the Jews, especially in the Old Testament times, had a very different way that they looked at prayer. In their prayers, they had no personal relationship with their God. Their gods were gods that needed to be appeased. And so rather than with reverence to come before that God and and having a relationship with their gods, they only came before God with a feeling of fear. 
Their gods were angry at them. Their gods had to be appeased. And so that led them into things like rituals of of human sacrifice. They didn't think that their gods were really their benefactors. Uh, Their gods just doled out the necessities depending upon the mood that they were in. And so it came down to this. If you can make your God happy, if you can appease your God, do what he wants, then you can probably get what you want. And so the heathens would pray, and they fell into their vain repetitions. They went into their chants because their gods were aloof and unconcerned about them. But the Jews knew this. Their God wasn't that way. It was much different with them. Now, in heathen religions today, we find the very same thing among people as as there were in Old Testament times. Uh, Today, you have the jihadists and you have suicide bombers, uh, especially in Islam. And you look at that religion and you say, is there peace with God? Well, no, there's no peace with God. I mean, these people are deluded into thinking that they strap on a suicide vest and they kill themselves and as many innocents as they can take with them, their God will be satisfied. So they have no peace with him. The Jews didn't look at it that way. They had, didn't have those kinds of feelings. Their, their uh, history was one of reverence for God. And certainly they did know God's power, but they also sought for fellowship with God. The heathens could never identify with the way that David prayed. David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They would never approach their God in that way. And that's because the Jews knew that it was their right to speak with God. God had granted them that right. And as much as being a God who must be obeyed, they also knew that their God was a God who was concerned about them and about their needs. Now, when we get a little bit further on, we're going to see how that Jesus developed that and he clarified the desire that God has for fellowship. And he showed them how to address God in a much more intimate way, even in a way that they hadn't used. So basically, that was their feeling. They should come to God. God genuinely desired that his people would speak with him. Now, when Elijah mocked those prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he played upon this indifference that the people thought that their gods had. And so uh, Elijah mocked them, and he said, you need to pray louder. Yell a little bit louder, fellas, because your God is off on a journey somewhere. Maybe your God is sleeping. And he just prayed on that indifference, or played upon that indifference that they believed that their gods had. Now, what Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer was really no different from what the Jews of the Old Testament had learned. The proper elements of prayer were always there in the Old Testament prayers. There was the reverence and there was the exaltation. They praised God in their prayers. I mean, how many times do you pick up the Psalms and you would read verses like these? Psalm 106, Praise ye the Lord, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 99, verse 5, Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Or that very familiar one in Psalm 100, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth to all generations. You would never find those kinds of prayers among the heathens. But the Jews knew better. God wanted them to pray. 
Do you notice that humility in, in Psalm 100? It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. So they knew to come to God with that praise and that exaltation. But then there's also the petition of prayer. They're aware of that. They, they knew that God uh, understood what they needed. And they could go and ask for him. And certainly they did have a God who would provide. But by the time we get to the New Testament, things had changed. The New Testament period begins and the hearts of the people were wrong. The prayers that they offered to God were not heartfelt. They were ritualistic. They were repetitious. They were prescribed prayers that they would pray at certain times of the day. And so God then was really no closer to them personally than the gods of the heathens were to those people. Now, what Jesus then did was not to try to reform their practices. Jesus wanted them to get God's perspective back again. There is a right way to pray. There is a wrong way to pray. The Old Testament instruction needed to be reiterated once again. It needed to be strengthened. And by doing so, he could get their worship back on track. Now, again, he didn't try to reform their practices. It does no good to take an evil system with people who have evil hearts and try to patch that up. Their religion was not the Jewish religion of the Old Testament because if it had been, then when Jesus came, they would have received him as Savior. They would have begun to worship him because that's the natural progression that you have Old Testament to New Testament. Jesus in the Old Testament is a Jesus in the New Testament. I mean, he's in both places. And so they naturally would have progressed to that, but they didn't. Their worship was altogether wrong. Their theology was wrong. Jesus exposed it in chapter 5. And again, what flowed out of that theology was wrong, which was their worship, and especially when it came to proper prayer. And so the desire to pray from God's perspective, that was taught in the Old Testament. But it was lost in Jewish practice. And so their desire to pray was for different reasons, completely different purposes when they prayed. Now, we also then look at the desire to pray, not just from God's perspective, but we do look at it from man's perspective. And this, again, is the measure of his spirituality. Now, unfortunately, although the Jews knew this, it is a measure of spirituality that they perverted it. I mean, their system, because their theology was wrong, had had led them to justification before men. And so in order to keep up a pretense and to establish that they were truly righteous people, they had to demonstrate their piety. And that's what Jesus talks about in that earlier section when he says they go and they pray in the streets and they pray on the street corners and they do all of that to be seen of men. They were interested in the outward show of spirituality, but there was really nothing that was in their heart. But it's no less true that prayer still is a measure of spirituality. And from God's perspective, if prayer is desired, then God is never going to judge us to be spiritual people if we have no desire to speak with him. Now, there are some who have called prayer the highest activity of the human soul. And so if you are a Christian who has no desire to pray, Your spirituality has been weighed in the balance, and it's been found wanting. And so thus we see that Jesus takes the most time with prayer. Giving is not the ultimate test of your spirituality. I mean, there are plenty of of godless philanthropists. You can look at charities all over the world today, and many of them are run by people who care nothing at all about Christ. Acts of devotion, that's not the, the highest measure, the ultimate test of spirituality. Look at those suicide bombers. There's nobody more devoted than they are. So that can't be a measure of spirituality. 
but your prayer life is different. It's something that doesn't have to be observed. Uh, Others don't have to look at your prayer life to, to see whether it's substantial. There's no requirement that you have a public show. Your prayer life is between you and God. And that's why in this instructive prayer, Jesus proceeded that with with warnings against public prayer. Jesus said, uh, pray in secret. And then he follows that up with these words, after this manner, therefore pray ye. Now we can go back to that historical perspective for the correct understanding of prayer from man's point of view. Because in the Old Testament, the Jews had been taught that they weren't to be selfish with their prayers. Isn't that one of the things that we see over and over again in the New Testament? How prayer needs to be corrected because we pray to consume it ourselves upon our own lust. Prayer is a very selfish thing. Well, the Jews knew better than that. Uh, You know, our understanding of God is very different uh, than the perspective that God has when, when, we, when it comes to things like our prayer life. I mean, we are confined to a specific place in time, a little segment of time and a little segment of our lives, and so we don't see the big picture. So what we tend to do is we pray for me and mine, and we concern ourselves with ourselves rather than praying the way that God wants us to pray. Now, let, let me explain something to you. Let me kind of give you an example here. We, we kind of pray for ourselves to the exclusion of others. Now, the Jews in the Old Testament would not do this. They, they understood something about this. Now, let's suppose for a moment that you had the opportunity to go to Kenya last year with Gary. And you're all excited about that trip, and you're really looking forward to it, and you're very concerned that you would have a good time and you'd be able to see everything that you want to see when you go. And so before you go, you get down on your knees or however you decide to pray, and earnestly you pray to God. And you say, Heavenly Father, would you please make sure that it doesn't rain on my trip to Kenya? I mean, I want to go and see all the wild animals. I, I want to see the majestic mountains. And so, Lord, please, as I go, give me fair days and sunny skies. Well, how many of you have read the papers lately? There is a drought in Kenya. People are starving to death because of the drought. So should you pray to God for a beautiful vacation and God wouldn't send any rain for your enjoyment or to ruin your enjoyment while there are thousands of people who may die for the lack of water? You see what I mean? There are Christians in Kenya that are right now praying that God would not do such things. They're saying, Lord, don't mess over a thousand of our people just so tourists can see wildlife and scenery. Prayer has to be very carefully thought out. And that's why we find included in this prayer that we are to pray for God's will to be done. Now, you know what happens when your will is done? Your will could actually turn out to be a holocaust for thousands of people. God sees the whole picture. He sees the big picture. And that's why prayer is not to be so selfish. Now, there's one of the things that you'll find in studying the Lord's Prayer that you might miss otherwise. I mean, you get down to this prayer and you find in 66 words that the Lord is amazing here and how that he just perfectly gives us instruction about how prayer should be done. Now, what I've given you here is just really a historical look at it, a a background of the problem in Jesus' time. The Old Testament perspective of prayer was gone. Now, when the Jews lived by God's law in the perfect form, and when they understood what God's law said, then their prayers were right. But when they perverted God's law in the way that they did in New Testament times, that's when their prayer went wrong. And so they had all these additions and all these misinterpretations of the law, and so their worship in prayer was wrong. It was very sorely wrong. 
And that's why Jesus had to deal with it. So we go on then from this desire to pray, secondly, to the demonstration of prayer. In Luke chapter 11, uh, Jesus responded to a request from the disciples. And there in that chapter we read, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. In R.C. Sproul's exposition of the Lord's Prayer, he writes, Imagine what it must have been like to have a privilege of following Jesus around day by day, listening to his teaching and watching him perform miracles. I can think of lots of things that they could have asked him to teach them. The disciples might have gone to him and said, Jesus, teach us to turn water into wine. They might have asked, teach us how to walk on water. Or they could have said, teach us how to raise people from the dead. Those are the kinds of questions I would have asked him. But the New Testament tells us of a different request that the disciples brought to Jesus. They came to him on one occasion, as Luke records it for us in his gospel, and said, Lord, teach us to pray. I find it fascinating that this was the burning question they brought to Jesus. They wanted to gain a special insight into prayer as a skill or an art. Now, you see, the importance of prayer in the disciples' mind was one that transcended all of the miracles that Jesus did. It was far more important, they thought, to learn how to pray. So they could pray as Jesus prayed. And so in Luke chapter 1, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Teach us to pray. Teach us the way that John taught his disciples to pray. And so they wanted the right kind of instruction. And that's what we find in Matthew chapter 6. Now, in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 6 are actually different occasions, but the teachings are exactly the same. The disciples took note of the way that Jesus prayed, and they found something that was very uncommon about it. Now, first they saw that the praying of Jesus was very much different from the praying of the Pharisees. It was different from the way that they grew up being taught about how to pray. And then the second thing that they noticed about Jesus' prayers is there was power in his prayer. Something happened when Jesus prayed. And so that's why they asked him, teach us to pray in that way, or as Sproul says, as an art, as as something that, uh, some insight into it. So it's a skill, as an art to pray. Now here's where I think that many of us go askew on the Lord's Prayer. There are people who attach something significant to these particular words in such a way that this prayer becomes better than all other prayers. Simply because Jesus prayed this prayer that somehow the Lord's prayer has become mystical and powerful. And that misnomer, I think, the Lord's prayer can lend itself to that kind of misuse. This is not a prayer that Jesus would have prayed for himself. Now there's only, I mean, there's one line in the prayer that very very easily demonstrate that. Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus had no sin to be forgiven of. And so this is not a prayer that he would pray. It's not a magical prayer. And so the best way that I could describe why Jesus gave this prayer and what it's all about, a couple of things here. And the first one is, it is a teaching tool. Jesus used it as a teaching tool. It's intended to be a model prayer. It's to demonstrate the right way of praying. And so in 66 words, what we have is a skeletal outline of what prayer should look like. This is prayer as a pattern. And so that's why we could might better call it the disciples' prayer. 
This is what they needed for their prayers to be answered. And so if their prayers continued to fall along the patterns of the scribes and the Pharisees, even though they were saved people, they had the knowledge of Christ, yet if their prayers continued according to that old model, to the old pattern in the wrong way, then their prayers had no chance of being answered, even as the heathens' prayers couldn't be answered. Now, I believe that's very important for us to remember. We may be guilty of approaching prayer with too flippant of an attitude. We come to God and we ask for the wrong things. We address God in the wrong way. And it was a problem. It was a problem for the people that Jesus was teaching here. It was a problem later on when the apostles began to preach about it. It's why the apostle James said, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust." So instruction was needed when Jesus first spoke it. It was needed throughout the apostles' ministry. And friends, prayer needs to be taught today because there's so many people don't understand it. Prayer is wrong. As we go through prayer, uh, this particular prayer, I believe that all of us are going to find ways that we can improve our prayer life and that it will be much more enjoyable. It will be an enriching experience. When we're taught properly about prayer, the desire to pray increases. Fellowship with the Heavenly Father is enriched. Spirituality is greatly enhanced. And blessings flow out of your prayers like never before. And so when these disciples watched Jesus pray, it only intensified their, their own feelings of inadequacy. Now, they were much like us. I mean, they knew the difficulties of prayer, uh, how hard it was to get down and say what they wanted to say. Uh, They found it difficult to muster up the desire just like we do. And yet, when they watched Jesus pray, it was so free-flowing. Jesus could go away for hours and spend long periods of time in prayer. And so, when they saw that from Jesus, then they desired to know God the Father as Jesus knew him. Now, isn't that really one of the keys? How much do we desire to know God? That is the real key to our prayers. I think that Paul had a vital prayer life because this is one thing that he said, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And that meant he wanted to get ever closer to the Lord. He wanted to have those kinds of encounters where the the Spirit of God really touches you and moves you and instructs you in your prayers. Knowing God, that's going to cause you to desire him and cause you to want to pray to him. So Jesus has a teaching tool. They could take this prayer, and they could begin to put meat on this skeleton. It has all the essential elements that they need, and so all that they really need to do is build upon this and make it genuinely their own prayer. And we do the very same. We only take this to build upon it to make it a genuine prayer for us. Now, that then leads me to the next observation, and that it was was a model and not memorization. This prayer is a model. It's not something for us simply to memorize. Here is a skeletal outline that has to be developed into a personal prayer. It's the model to build upon. You see, this is not a, a place where Jesus intended for the disciples to camp out. And do you know that with all the instructions that we have on prayer in the New Testament, there is not one time where the Lord's Prayer is ever repeated? You can look at all the instructions that Paul gave, and you can go to James, and you can read John. You can look all throughout the New Testament, and you are not going to find one instance where this prayer was ever repeated. In fact, if you go to the book of Luke, you'll notice that when Jesus taught on it, he didn't use the same words. He switched up some of the words. So this is not memorization for it. 
Now, now I've read a lot of things about this. I mean, I've studied uh, the Lord's Prayer in preparation for the messages that I'm bringing. And, and I notice that there are a lot of people, a lot of men, who defend their liturgies. And there are men who have a, a very curious lack of consistency. They're, they're very good Bible teachers otherwise, and they do teach correctly that what we have before us is the model prayer. It's not intended to be our personal prayer. And yet at the same time, they defend their repetitions of the Lord's Prayer. Now, to me, that defeats Christ's entire purpose. In the earlier verses, he said, don't use vain repetitions. Now, if Jesus had intended that the Lord's Prayer would be a liturgical recitation that we would use in churches, then he would have said so, and he would have stuck with the very same words when he said it the second time. But again, we find no instances in the New Testament where this prayer is ever repeated. But let me clarify something for you, because I really don't want you to go away with this idea that saying the Lord's Prayer is wrong, that somehow that's verboten. Now, if that was true, then there would be danger of us even reading the Lord's Prayer out loud. You know, I like what one person said about this. He said, there are times when I just don't know what to say, and I fall back on this prayer because there is every essential element that is needed to pray correctly. And so the words of the Lord's Prayer, if they were repeated with with, uh, sincerity and with meaning and with desire then it's true. It would make a great prayer. It's a great short prayer. But then you have others that argue that point, and they say, well, no, uh, this prayer does not end with the words, in Jesus' name. And so we're not to use the Lord's Prayer. Well, I don't want you to be confused about that either. A few weeks ago, we talked about this very issue. How should we address our prayers? We address them to God the Father, and we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. But what happens if you forget to verbalize those words? What if you pray sometime and you forget to say, in the name of Jesus? Well, I think it's possible to have it fully in your mind that you are depending upon Christ, that you do have a relationship with him. You don't have any intention to purposely leave out Christ as if you don't want to pray in his name. And so you may not verbalize the name, But you do know why you can talk to God, that you are a believer. You have been washed from your sins in the blood of Christ. You are born again. And so you know the reason why you can come to God. It's on the basis of what Christ has done. And so I don't think if you forget to verbalize the words that you'd be disqualified. But I also think it's all the more important why we don't use the Lord's Prayer as a public liturgy. Christ later taught on the issue of the use of his name, and if we don't clearly announce the name of the one that we're praying to in public, then I don't think that we pray properly. And you even have some people who fall back on the Lord's Prayer because of this. They're willing to pray this prayer in public because it doesn't mention the name of Jesus. And so they feel safe. Nobody's going to be, nobody's going to be angry about it. They're not going to be offended about it. So we'll just use the Lord's Prayer. And you see how wrong that can be? You know, I'm surprised that God would not strike a person down right there for speaking the Lord's Prayer out of its context and misusing it to blaspheme the name of Jehovah God rather than to magnify him. Now, let me explain something to you. If prayer is what governs our spirituality, if this is a test of our hearts to see if we really are close to God, that we know God as we should, then prayer must be right in order to pass the test. And it's not a test merely to be, a, to be in a testing state or it's a standardized test that you take. And so you see where your score falls in all of this. 
Now we're talking about a heartfelt measurement of a true desire to walk and to talk with God. And so if that is your desire, if that's truly your desire, then I encourage you, study the prayer. Take the skeleton of information, take every step that it outlines and learn it. Learn the framework of this. And then earnestly desire that your prayers would be prayed in the way that God wants them to be prayed. Now, as I've been studying this myself, I've been much more keenly aware of the way that I pray and the things that I say when I pray. And that's because I want to honor the Father. I want to magnify Christ when I pray. And if that's your desire, I say to you, listen intently. We're going to study the instruction of prayer in 2010. And your spiritual life is going to be enhanced when you study God's Word and you develop the right kind of prayer life. Now let me finalize this and summarize the message by stating to anyone in the room who does not know Christ. Let me, let me give you the last word today. Only Christ gives you the right to speak with God. Now the Jews of the Old Testament times learned that it was their right to speak with God. Why was it their right? I mean, why, why wasn't it the Canaanites' right to speak with God? Why wasn't the Philistines' right to speak with God? And the answer to the question is that no one has a right to speak with God who does not have a relationship with him. And so they were God's people, and so they understood this is their right. They can speak to God. But when you come to the Jews of Jesus' time, here's the very thing that's missing. The relationship to God is the thing that's missing. And they couldn't have proved it in a no more perverse way than the fact that they rejected Christ as the Messiah. Now, they didn't trust him as the Savior. And so they then were standing on the very same ground as all the humans, uh, uh, the uh, uh, heathens that were all around them, on the very same ground. They had rejected God because they had rejected Jesus Christ. And I will tell you today that if you don't know Christ, you stand in the very same place. You have no right to speak with God unless you have received Christ. Now, I wish I could say that in a gentler way. I wish I could say, well, you know, God will, God will talk with you and you can talk with God and you can receive answers to your prayer. I can't tell you that. I have only one revelation from the Almighty God that I can go by. What I think and what you think doesn't matter at all. What God says in his word, that is the law. And when God says that you must come by Jesus Christ, then you must come by Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And so I invite you to do the same as Christ invited. He said, come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, if you feel that need to pray, if there are burdens upon you that are heavy, you can come to Christ, and Christ will take the burdens away. And how does he do it? He does it by trusting him. You begin to learn of him. You receive him as Savior, and then you have the right to speak to the Heavenly Father. So learn of Him. That's what we're doing as we study the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. We're learning of Him, and we'll get to know Him better, and we'll learn how to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word. And we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us the right to come to You. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior. They may have burdens upon them. They may know that they are sinners. They know that something needs to change. 
I just ask you, Lord, to speak to hearts today and help them to trust you as Savior so they have the right to speak with the Heavenly Father. And Lord, I pray for Christians here today who do know you, but our lives, uh, as far as studying the Bible and, and, and praying, are woefully short. I just pray for these people, and I pray that 2010 might be a year where we dedicate ourselves to the study of the Word, and Lord, that we get right down to the very nitty-gritty of things and understand that we must communicate with our Heavenly Father. Give us good prayer lives. Give us that desire, that urge to know the Lord better and also that we might be able to fight off those attacks of Satan when he comes to try to ruin our prayer lives. Help us to understand, Lord, if we're going to be a church that's vibrant, that goes forward for you, we must be a church that knows your word and one that is in contact with you every minute of the day. Thank you, Lord, for your people. Bless in this time that we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.